Chapter Two of the Jacket by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. I am Darrell Standing. They are going to take me out and hang me pretty soon. In the meantime, I say my say and write in these pages of the other times and places. After my sentence, I came to spend the rest of my natural life in the prison of San Quentin. I proved incorrigible. An incorrigible is a terrible human being. At least such is the connotation of incorrigible in prison psychology. I became an incorrigible because I abhorred waste motion. The prison, like all prisons, was a scandal and an affront of waste motion. They put me in the jute mill. The criminality of wastefulness irritated me. Why should it not? Elimination of waste motion was my specialty. Before the invention of steam or steam-driven looms three thousand years before, I had rotted in prison of old Babylon. And trust me, I speak the truth when I say that in that ancient day we prisoners wove more efficiently on hand-looms than did the prisoners in the steam-powered loom-rooms of San Quentin. The crime of waste is abhorrent. I rebelled. I tried to show the guards a score or so of more efficient ways. I was reported. I was given the dungeon and the starvation of light and food. I emerged and tried to work in the chaos of inefficiency of the loom rooms. I rebelled. I was given the dungeon plus the straitjacket. I was spread-eagled and thumbed up, and privily beaten by the stupid guards whose totality of intelligence was only just sufficient to show them that I was different from them and not so stupid. Two years of this witless persecution I endured. It is terrible for a man to be tied down and gnawed by rats. The stupid brutes of guards were rats, and they gnawed the intelligence of me, gnawed all the fine nerves of the quick of me and of the consciousness of me. And I, who in my past had been a most valiant fighter, in this present life was no fighter at all. I was a farmer, an agriculturist, a desk-tied professor, a laboratory slave, interested only in the soil and the increase of the productiveness of the soil. I fought in the Philippines because it was the tradition of the standings to fight. I had no aptitude for fighting. It was all too ridiculous, the introducing of disruptive foreign substances into the bodies of little black menfolk. It was laughable to behold science prostituting all the might of its achievement and the wit of its inventors to the violent introducing of foreign substances into the bodies of black folk. As I say, in obedience to the tradition of the standings, I went to war and found that I had no aptitude for war. So did my officers find me out, because they made me a quartermaster's clerk, and as a clerk, at a desk, I fought through the Spanish-American War. So it was not because I was a fighter, but because I was a thinker that I was enraged by the motion wastage of the loom-rooms, and was persecuted by the guards into becoming an incorrigible. One's brain worked, and I was punished for its working. As I told Warden Atherton, when my incorrigibility had become so notorious that he had me in on the carpet in his private office to plead with me, as I told him then, it is so absurd, my dear Warden, to think that your rat-throttlers of guards can shake out of my brain the things that are clear and definite in my brain. The whole organization of this prison is stupid. You are a politician. You can weave the political pull of San Francisco saloon men and ward healers into a position of graft such as this one you occupy, but you can't weave jute. Your loom rooms are fifty years behind the times. 
But why continue the tirade? For tirade it was. I showed him what a fool he was, and as a result he decided that I was a hopeless incorrigible. Give a dog a bad name. You know the saw. Very well. Warden Atherton gave the final sanction to the badness of my name. I was fair game. More than one convict's dereliction was shunted off on me, and was paid for by me in the dungeon on bread and water, or in being triced up by the thumbs on my tiptoes for long hours, each hour of which was longer than any life I have ever lived. Intelligent men are cruel. Stupid men are monstrously cruel. The guards and the men over me, from the warden down, were stupid monsters. Listen, and you shall learn what they did to me. There was a poet in the prison, a convict, a wheat-chinned, broad-browed, degenerate poet. He was a forger. He was a coward. He was a snitcher. He was a stool. Strange words for a professor of agronomics to use in writing, but a professor of agronomics may well learn strange words when pent in prison for the term of his natural life. This poet-forger's name was Cecil Winwood. He had had prior convictions, and yet, because he was a sniveling cur of a yellow dog, his last sentence had been only for seven years. Good credits would materially reduce this time. My time was life. Yet this miserable degenerate, in order to gain several short years of liberty for himself, decided in adding a fair portion of eternity to my own lifetime term. I shall tell what happened the other way around for it was only after a weary period that I learned. This Cecil Winwood, in order to curry favor with the captain of the yard, and thence the warden, the prison directors, the board of pardons, and the governor of California, framed up a prison break. Now note three things. A. Cecil Winwood was so detested by his fellow convicts that they would not have permitted him to bet an ounce of Bull Durham on a bedbug race, and bedbug racing was a great sport with the convicts. B. I was the dog that had been given a bad name. C. For his frame-up, Cecil Winwood needed the dogs with bad names, the lifetimers, the desperate ones, the incorrigibles. But the lifers detested Cecil Winwood, and when he approached them with his plan of a wholesale prison break, they laughed at him and turned away with curses for the stool that he was. But he fooled them in the end. Forty of the bitterest wise ones in the pen. He approached them again and again, he told of his power in the prison by virtue of his being trustee in the warden's office, and because of the fact that he had the run of the dispensary. "'Show me,' said Long Bill Hodge, a mountaineer doing life for train robbery, and whose whole soul for years had been bent on escaping in order to kill the companion in robbery who had turned state's evidence on him. Cecil Winwood accepted the test. He claimed that he could dope the guards the night of the break. "'Talk is cheap.' said Long Bill Hodge. What we want is the goods. Dope one of the guards tonight. There's Barnum. He's no good. He beat up that crazy chink yesterday in Bughouse Alley, when he was off duty, too. He's on the night watch. Dope him tonight and make him lose his job. Show me, and we'll talk business with you. All this Long Bill told me in the dungeons afterward. Cecil Winwood demurred against the immediacy of the demonstration. He claimed that he must have time in which to steal the dope from the dispensary. They gave him the time, and a week later he announced that he was ready. Forty hard-bitten lifers waited for the guard Barnum to go to sleep on his shift. And Barnum did. He was found asleep, and he was discharged for sleeping on duty. Of course, that convinced the lifers. 
but there was the captain of the yard to convince. To him, daily, Cecil Winwood was reporting the progress of the break, all fancied and fabricated in his own imagination. The captain of the yard demanded to be shown. Winwood showed him, and the full details of the showing I did not learn until a year afterward. So slowly do the secrets of prison intrigue leak out. Winwood said that the forty men in the break, in whose confidence he was, had already such power in the prison that they were about to begin smuggling in automatic pistols by the means of guards they had bought up. "'Show me,' the captain of the yard must have demanded. And the forger poet showed him. In the bakery, night work was a regular thing. One of the convicts, a baker, was on the first night shift. He was a stool of the captain of the yard, and Winwood knew it. "'Tonight,' he told the captain, "'Summerface will bring in a dozen forty-four automatics. On his next time off he'll bring in the ammunition. But tonight he'll turn the automatics over to me in the bakery. You've got a good stool there. He'll make you his report tomorrow.' Now Summerface was a strapping figure of a bucolic guard who hailed from Humboldt County. He was a simple-minded, good-natured dolt, and not above earning an honest dollar by smuggling in tobacco for the convicts. On that night, returning from a trip to San Francisco, he brought in with him fifteen pounds of prime cigarette tobacco. He had done this before, and delivered the stuff to Cecil Winwood. So on that particular night, he, all unwitting, turned the stuff over to Winwood in the bakery. It was a big, solid, paper-wrapped bundle of innocent tobacco. The stool baker, from concealment, saw the package delivered to Winwood, and so reported to the captain of the yard next morning. But in the meantime, the poet-forger's too lively imagination ran away with him. He was guilty of a slip that gave me five years of solitary confinement, and that placed me in this condemned cell in which I now write. And all the time I knew nothing about it. I did not even know of the break he had inveigled the forty lifers into planning. I knew nothing, absolutely nothing, and the rest knew little. The lifers did not know he was giving them the cross. The captain of the yard did not know that the cross snow was being worked on him. Summerface was the most innocent of all. At the worst, his conscience could have accused him only of smuggling in some harmless tobacco. And now to the stupid, silly, melodramatic slip of Cecil Winwood. Next morning, when he encountered the chief of the yard, he was triumphant. His imagination took the bit in its teeth. Well, the stuff came in all right as you said the captain of the yard remarked. "'And enough of it to blow half the prison sky-high,' Winwood corroborated. "'Enough of what?' the captain demanded. "'Dynamite and detonators,' the fool rattled on. Thirty-five pounds of it. Your stool saw Summerface pass it over to me.' And right there the captain of the yard must have nearly died. I can actually sympathize with him. Thirty-five pounds of dynamite loose in the prison. They say that Captain Jamie— that was his nickname, sat down and held his head in his hands. "'Where is it now?' he cried. "'I want it. Take me to it at once.' And right there Cecil Winwood saw his mistake. "'I planted it,' he lied, for he was compelled to lie because, being merely tobacco in small packages, it was long since distributed among the convents along the customary channels. "'Very well,' said Captain Jamie, getting himself in hand. Lead me to it at once. But there was no plant of high explosives to lead him to. 
The thing did not exist, had never existed save in the imagination of the wretched Winwood. In a large prison like San Quentin, there are always hiding places for things, and as Cecil Winwood led Captain Jamie, he must have done some rapid thinking. As Captain Jamie testified before the board of directors, and as Winwood also so testified, on the way to the hiding place, Winwood said that he and I had planted the powder together. And I, just released from five days in the dungeons and eighty hours in the jacket, I, whom even the stupid guards could see, was too weak to work in the loom room, I, who had been given the day off to recuperate from too terrible punishment, I was named as the one who had helped hide the non-existent thirty-five pounds of high explosive. Winwood led Captain Jamie to the alleged hiding place. Of course, they found no dynamite in it. My God, Winwood lied. Standing has given me the cross. He's lifted the plant and stowed it somewhere else. The captain of the yard said more emphatic things than, My God. Also, on the spur of the moment, but cold-bloodedly, he took Winwood into his own private office, locked the doors, and beat him up frightfully, all of which came out before the board of directors. But that was afterward. In the meantime, even while he took his beating, Winwood swore by the truth of what he had told. What was Captain Jamie to do? He was convinced that thirty-five pounds of dynamite were loose in the prison and that forty desperate lifers were ready for a break. Oh, he had Summerface in on the carpet, and although Summerface insisted the package contained tobacco, Winwood swore it was dynamite and was believed. At this stage I enter, or rather, I depart, for they took me away out of the sunshine and the light of day to the dungeons. And in the dungeons and in the solitary cells, out of the sunshine and the light of day, I rotted for five years. I was puzzled. I had only just been released from the dungeons, and was lying pain-racked in my customary cell, when they took me back to the dungeon. "'Now,' said Winwood to Captain Jamie, "'though we don't know where it is, the dynamite is safe. Standing is the only man who does know, and he can't pass the word out from the dungeon. The men are ready to make the break. We can catch them red-handed. It is up to me to set the time. I'll tell them two o'clock tonight, and tell them that, with the guards doped, I'll unlock their cells and give them their automatics. If, at two o'clock tonight, you don't catch the forty I shall name, with their clothes on and wide awake, then, Captain, you can give me solitary for the rest of my sentence. And with standing and the forty tight in the dungeons, we'll have all the time in the world to locate the dynamite. If we have to tear the prison down stone by stone, Captain Jamie added valiantly, that was six years ago. In all the intervening time they have never found the non-existent explosive, and they have turned the prison upside down a thousand times in searching for it. Nevertheless, to his last day in office, Warden Atherton believed in the existence of that dynamite. Captain Jamie, who is still captain of the yard, believes to this day that the dynamite is somewhere in the prison. Only yesterday he came all the way up from San Quentin to Folsom, to make one more effort to get me to reveal the hiding place. I know he will never breathe easy until they swing me off. End of chapter 2